God who always was came. He came here, and he came specifically to be born, to live, so as to die, that we who believe on him might live forevermore. So this is a very, very special season of celebration for us. And the manner in which the Lord came is remarkable. I know you agree. He did not come enfleshed as an intimidating personage. He came as a delightful baby. Who isn't attracted? Who doesn't delight in babies? They're non-threatening. They are safe. They are a delight. And this causes, this very fact causes a problem for many people, perhaps more than we would care to admit to for this reason. This baby Jesus, who came as a safe and approachable, gentle babe, grew uh, to be the God-man, Jesus Christ, And there are many who find that this God of the Bible is not so safe at all. In fact, they say, some, uh, he's quite cruel, in fact, savage, for the God of the Bible authorized, in many cases, in his book, the extermination of many people groups. We find this particularly say, critics of this Jesus in the Old Testament. And they find it a little inconsistent that this God alleged to be loving and holy would engage in warfare, even holy war. They find it contradictory that this God who we find inviting and invite people to approach is actually depicted in the Bible in a very uninviting way. Here is the God who authorizes holy war, extermination of those he determines to be unholy or sinners, absolutely. And, and so we're going to address that real issue in the text tonight. It's Numbers chapter 31. We'll take a trek through it. And you know this whole book is a, is a depiction of Israel's trek from bondage to uh, through the wilderness and on her way to a land of promise. And we're applying Israel's journey to our own. And so take a look with me. It's in chapter 31 at verse 1. And we'll try to deal with this pretty rough issue. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, so here's the rub for many, take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, uh, God said to Moses, you will be gathered to your people. So as one of the last tasks uh, designated to Moses by God before he passed on, Before he was gathered to his people, God said, I want you and the people to be an instrument of my full vengeance, specifically against the Midianites, who you recall were kind of a semi-nomadic people. They traveled from place to place. Uh, They're the ancestors of, uh, or the offspring of uh, Abraham and Keturah. 
and they populate the area. Today it would be modern-day Jordan, the southern part of Jordan, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And they're in view here, because we read earlier, they were participants in a very crafty scheme to seduce Israel into sinning against God. You see, their efforts to combat Israel failed, but their efforts to corrupt Israel met with much more success. What the Midianite men could not do, the seductive Midianite women succeeded in doing. And so they tempted the Israelites into compromise for sexual favors, and in the process, the Israelites took on the worship of Midianite false gods. So you see this terrible amalgam between immorality and uh, idolatry. So that was what we read about way back in chapter 25. And so as a result of all this, the Lord now says to Moses, lead the people in taking full vengeance for the sons of Israel against the Midianites. Now, God had not spared his own, as you recall. God judged the Israelites for giving in to this temptation. And in one day, the text tells us, 24,000 perished as a result of the righteous judgment of God. But now it's time for the Midianites to meet before Almighty God and be judged for their sin. And so it says in verse 3, Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You know, I think, that we are not permitted to take our own revenge. Did you know that? Yeah, when you be, some are new Christians here, and I don't want to ruin your day, but you don't have as many options now uh, as you used to. The option, if mistreated, that you once had to take revenge has been taken away. Let me share with you Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. You see, so you have two options. You can take your own revenge or you can leave room for the wrath of God. You can let him be the justice maker. Those are the options. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And, and, and that's what's happening here. The Lord is repaying the Midianites for the offense done by the Midianites to Israel. And what you see as you read the scriptures is kind of a, uh, a crisscrossing of interests. The interests of God's people are the interests of God. That's good news for you. What concerns you today as one of God's people, you need to know, is a matter of concern for your father, your heavenly father. Isn't that good? And so an offense against God's people, we'll see here, is taken as an offense against God. He takes it quite seriously because he wants his people to be those healthy and well who bring glory to his name. And if anyone causes his people, his kids, to to stumble along the way, God takes it quite seriously, and that's what's happening here. So verse 6, if you skip a little bit, it says, Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe. So how many tribes are there in Israel? Yeah, there are 12. So there's 12,000 
1,000 from each tribe. Why? Because God wants the entire congregation to have a measure of involvement in what's about to happen. So take 1,000 from each tribe to the war. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. A very unusual battle strategy, I think you'll agree. Phineas was not a military man, not one of the generals or officers. He was a priest. He was a religious man. Why is he part and parcel of what's going on? Well, because what you're about to see is a holy war. It's not a war of conquest. It's not a war of political expansionism. It's not designed to subjugate a vulnerable people group. It's designed to provide for the protection and spiritual purity of the people God chose to glorify him. And so the leader in this effort has to be a holy man, not a military man, because it's a holy war. So verse 7, they did this. They made war against, the, against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, and you have the names of five Midianite kings here, and it says they also killed Balaam, son of Baor, with the sword. Now, you might remember Balaam. He was well known in his day. In fact, his services were sought after by a man named Balak, if you remember. Balak said, I will richly reward you if you curse, if you get God to curse Israel. It was thought that people like Balaam in that day had the power to manipulate the gods, plural, they didn't believe in one God, the gods to issue blessings or cursings on individuals or people groups. So Balak uh, hired Balaam to do this. Balaam was going to do this. But Israel's God got in the way and said, you will not curse them. In fact, you will bless them. So Balaam, you would think, learned his lesson, but he only partially learned it. He figured out that Israel could not be cursed. Therefore, he came up with a rather brilliant, though devious, strategy in which Israel would be corrupted. We can't curse them, but we could corrupt them. So he was the mastermind behind this plan to send seductive women into the midst of Israelite men to coerce those men, again in return for physical involvement, to participate in ancient pagan religious services. He now dies as well. That's what it says here. So then you get in verse 9 this. The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and all their cattle and flocks and goods and they burned all their cities where they lived and their camps with fire. They took all the spoil and prey of man and beast. They brought the captives and the prey and everything to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, to the congregation of the sons of Israel, to the camp, which was in the plains of Moab, uh, by the Jordan River opposite Jericho. And Moses and Eleazar the priest, all the leaders of the congregation, they went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry. He was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Moses was upset that these soldiers, the Israelite soldiers, did not take the lives of all the women. 
It's getting a little gruesome here. I, I think you can see why critics of the Bible have a hard time with texts like this. Moses said, why did you spare the lives of the women? You see, these are the ones who caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Moses said, I can't believe you did this. You kept alive the very women who seduced you into relationships with them, illicit sexual relationships, the consequence of which was a plague through which 24,000 of you died. You kept them alive. And so Moses says in verse 17, Therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. So, we stop, take a deep breath, and say, what? So many critics of the Bible say, I could never identify, as you Christians say I ought, I could never identify with a God who would authorize the killing of men, women, and children. How do we respond to something like this? I'm not going to avoid the question. I'm going to handle it specifically in a second. But first, can I give a general response? Um, A general response first to those who question God's moral right to take human life. General response. As the creator of life, do you realize he has every right to do whatever he wants to do with every human life? Do you realize? Let's just, let's just start there. Do you realize the giving and the taking of life is his prerogative as the creator of human life, as author of human life? He holds sway with regard to its beginning and its ending for every one of us. And we can complain and groan and question and criticize, okay. But if you step back just for a second, we really don't have a basis for so doing. For the author of life has every moral right to do with human life, whatever he chooses to do. So some people actually accuse God, humans accuse the creator of life of crimes against humanity. Some actually accuse God of crimes like this in this text against humanity. Uh, But folks, there's something crazy about that. (laughs) Because God, by right... He could do whatever he wants to with the humanity he birthed, he created, he gave life to. So, you know, we cannot apply the same standard of morality to God we do to one another. For instance, you and I do not have the right to terminate somebody else's life. Did you know that? We don't have the right to do so because none of us are the author of life. But he can. He's the author of life. So I can't apply the same criteria we must hold each other to, to God. He's categorically different. And I find this interesting. Correct me later if I'm wrong. Um, 
I, I think that many of those who would deny the Creator uh, the right to take life seem to find plenty of permission themselves to take the life of the unborn. Um, you say, what's the correlation? Well, there is. <laughs> there just are. It's just quite interesting to me. Those who are wrong about the highness, holiness, justice, goodness, and authority of Almighty God seem to be wrong about everything else, including the value of human life, including the value of the life of the unborn. So it's such a hypocritical, inconsistent. God doesn't have a right to take the life of those humans he deems to be guilty, but others have the right to take the life of the unborn infant who is innocent. Can you see how inconsistent is, is the argument? Some are offended by events such as the one recorded here in Numbers 31, saying that the murder by God of innocent women and children is surely unjustified. But there's a flaw in their thinking. See, the so-called murder of innocence is a flawed notion since there ain't none. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us are conceived in sin. Sin is us and we Pass it on, generation to generation. So it's a flawed argument, murder of innocent women. Nobody is innocent before all Almighty God. They find it unjust. If you want justice by right, don't you think God would be justified in executing all of us? We're guilty. Here's nothing I find interesting about those who argue against the morality of God. They're the, they're the very ones who do not deny that society, its authorities, law enforcement and governmental authorities, has the right and even obligation to protect its citizenry by sometimes imposing punitive standards upon those who would harm other members of society. So we have sanctions against uh, uh, child abusers. We have sanctions against mass murderers. We have sanctions against terrorists. And we all, most of us, all, it's got to be all of us logical thinkers, agree that for the protection of society at large, sometimes some of society's individual members are justifiably needing to be the recipients of the strong arm of the law. <laughs> Sometimes they even need to be executed. Well, now, if we human beings can see cases where it is legitimate to deal that severely and harshly and strikingly with those who threaten the well-being of society at large, why don't we permit God? <laughs> the same right to deal with, yes, even whole people groups, like in this case the Midianites, who have a very strong possibility of corrupting and infecting the rest of society. Why can we do it and God can't? See, I don't, 
I don't get it. And some say, wait, you Christians, you don't get it. You're, you're, the Bible is so, is so inconsistent. I mean, the God you say gave you the Bible said thou shalt not murder. And here he is doing it. God is violating his own commandment. I think it's the sixth commandment. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. You know, that's a rather unfortunate translation, thou shalt not murder. The Hebrew word actually means thou shall not uh, take life in an unauthorized way. It's a prohibition against the unauthorized taking of life. But as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> God is authorized. He has authority to start and end the life of anyone he wants to whenever he wants to. He's not violating his own commandments at all. But some say the notion of a vengeful God, as is described here, full vengeance of the Lord, is distasteful. I don't want to buddy up next to a God like that. Well, those are people who are equating human vengefulness with divine. A divine vengeance emanates from God's holiness. Human vengeance emanates from human selfishness. Divine vengeance is a vehicle used by God for the good of the whole. Human vengeance does not have that quality. It's not the same thing. Human vengeance is oftentimes self-centered, unrestrained, and impulsive. God's is never. It's always restrained, thoughtful, planned, and purposeful for the good of the greater society. But you could say, wait just a second. What greater good could possibly come from killing people like the Midianites? Well, I'll tell you. God is holy, and we sinned against him. He, as I mentioned earlier, would have had every right to terminate the entire human race. Instead... He made a provision for human sin because he's a redeeming, forgiving God. And the way he effected his plan of redemption was to choose a particular person, Abraham, through whom would come a particular people group, the Israelites, through whom and give them a particular place, the land of Israel, in which would be born a particular Savior, the babe born in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus, who would suffer an unusual and excruciating particular form of capital punishment in place of those to whom it should have been their due, who would have a particular resurrection and a particular set of post-resurrection appearances, who would have a particular ascension from a particular place called the Mount of Olives, where he would occupy a particular place of honor at the right hand of Almighty God until the time when he has a very timely and particular return to earth in order to establish his earthly reign. Now listen to me. That's God's plan of redemption. Now, the particular people are the Israelites, the very ones who the Midianites are succeeding in corrupting through immorality and idolatry. 
And because God so loves the world, he will not allow those people who are to be the vehicle of his redemptive message to be so corrupted that their message is neutralized. That's why, for the greater good, God said through Moses, you must exterminate the Midianites. They are sinful to the core. The degradation with which they have debased themselves is unchecked. Israel, people from whom Messiah will come, Israel will be polluted, putrefied, nullified, will have no standing, no, uh, uh, no influence in the world. And therefore, to preserve a line of Messiah, God tells Moses to tell the people to deal with the Midianites. It is for the greater good. In order to preserve a testimony of a redeemer, God preserves the wholeness, harmony, and purity of a people who are called by his name. And you know who else is? Us is Christians. It's the case with us today. We don't kill off Midianites today. Did you know that? But we must, with just as much fervor, kill off the sinful inclinations in us which compromise evidence of the Savior in us. Folks, it's the same holy war. The Midianites would have killed off evidence of a God tabernacling, dwelling in the midst of Israel. And our sin can absolutely militate against evidence of a holy, living, risen Savior who has taken up his abode in our life. We're in a war, but it's a holy war. It's not for geography. It's not political. It's not uh, to be fought with weaponry and clenched fists. It's a spiritual war, and we need our high priest, just as Israel had Phineas, to lead us in the battle of flesh versus spirit so that we look like salt and light. God wants us with as much passion to kill off the sinful lusts and inclinations in our lives which neutralize our testimony to the world. For God so loved the world, he wants the world to know that he offered his son as a sacrifice for for human sin. Yeah, but why don't we kill off folks today just as God did to the Midianites then in order to advance the kingdom? Wait a minute. He didn't kill them off to advance the kingdom. No, 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 no. He did so to protect the integrity and purity of the people group he chose to be the vehicle of his redemptive message. We do not advance the kingdom today through threat of death, <laughs> as some groups are prone to do, fill in the blank. We do not do that. We do not go on holy war where we threaten one's life if that one doesn't submit to our deity. No, on the contrary, we go about the world to be living proof of a loving God. We died to self so that people could see evidence of a living Savior in us and themselves embrace him and live on for eternity. So our Midianites, if you will, uh, the ones whom God wants us to war against and kill off, 
Well, are the lusts within us that give rise to sin, just as the Bible says. And so, you see, we too can become contaminated and as a result, useless as vehicles of God's redemptive message. You know how it is. You've run into people and you're sharing the marvelous good news with them and they say, I've known Christians before. And then you know what's coming and they begin to tell you about how their lifestyle was no different than anybody else. How their lifestyle was contrary to this Savior you're trying to persuade them to believe in. It's that kind of stuff that God wants us to kill off. Things that compromise our testimony. So Balaam invited the Israelites to participate in two eyes, idolatry and immorality. And Satan does the same with us today. So let me read to you something in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. It mentions there the doctrine of Balaam. Let's see what it is. Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you because you have, uh, the writer is speaking to one of the churches, because you have there some who hold, here it is, the teaching of Balaam. Well, now we know who Balaam is. We read about him in Numbers. Now he's invoked way over here in Revelation. Some of you, it says here, you hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block. So that's the teaching of Balaam. See, here's his devious scheme. Put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and here's what it is, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So there it is, idolatry and immorality. That's what gets us. Idolatry is nothing more than spirituality gone awry. And immorality is nothing more than sexuality gone awry. Both spirituality and sexuality are not inherently wrong. These are God-given things. But it gets turned into perversion when it goes awry. This is the teaching of Balaam. He told Balak, put a stumbling block in front of Israel. Get them to eat food sacrificed to idols and to engage in immorality. By the way, you see the phrase stumbling block? In the Greek, it's the word skandalon. What does it sound like? Scandal. It's a scandalous thing for someone to try to trip up the people of God. God takes it seriously. It's a scandalous thing to try to put something in the way of those for whom Jesus died, to trip them up and lead them astray. It's a stumbling block. It's a scandalous thing. And here, you see, the teaching of Balaam is we can't beat Israel militarily. Let's beat them through immorality and idolatry. We can't extinguish the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So Satan says, but I can corrupt it from the inside. I can neutralize its testimony through immorality and idolatry. Don't think of an idol as a statue only. An idol is anything we depend on in place of the true God we ought to depend on. And I don't have to explain immorality. We, we know too much about that. Our worst enemies are not the Al-Qaeda and the whatever you want, Taliban. No. Our worst enemies are those who seek to draw us away from Savior, and into sin. Those are our worst enemies. 
and God will make holy war against them. Why? Because if we give into it, we lose our effectiveness as those who are here to give evidence of a living, holy Savior. It's serious, serious business. So we are to make war against the inclinations within us. It's not Midianites. We found the enemy, folks. <laughs> the enemy is within. The Bible says everyone sins when we give in to the lusts which are, which are in us. So that's the battle. And it's a daily battle. It's pretty hard, isn't it? Flesh versus spirit doesn't come easy to any of us. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I ought to do, that's what I do. Paul faced the struggle, so do we. Flesh versus spirit. Thank God, at least we're in the battle. Before, we were just defeated. We couldn't pose any resistance. Now we can. And the high priest, oh, not Phineas, one far better. The high priest, the Lord Jesus, uh, is willing to lead us in the battle and into ultimate victory. We're not in this alone, but you need to know it's a holy war. What happened with the Midianites typified it. It pointed to an ultimate reality, and the ultimate reality is we are in a holy war because we're ransomed and redeemed, connected to and represent a holy God, and all inclinations and evidences of unholinesses in our lives must be rooted out in order for us to have a pure and unadulterated testimony of the holy God with whom we are telling people they must make do. We can't look into the eyes of someone and say, Jesus made me whole when I'm in pieces because I'm sinning against him. You just can't do that. You did not lose your salvation, and God loves you, but you forfeited the effectiveness, as do I, of our testimony. God doesn't want any of his kids disqualified. Look no further for what purpose you have in life. You are redeemed to represent him. We are called ambassadors for Christ, as if God is in us, pleading with the world, be reconciled to God. Don't you see our plea is neutralized and mitigated again? watered down to the extent that we live ungodly lives in our quest to attract people to God. You see, it's just common sense. We're in a war. It's a holy war. It's not political. It's not geographic. It's not expansionistic. It isn't anything like that. It is spiritual. It is spiritual. It is spiritual and it requires spiritual weaponry. Well, look, some are absolutely amazed at what they call the cruelty of God in passages like Numbers 31 and the viciousness of God in taking life. In fact, Richard Dawkins, you perhaps have heard of him. He's a fairly well-known atheist. Richard Dawkins refers to the God of the Bible, these are his words, as an evil monster. Yes. Another atheist of notoriety, Christopher Hitchens, wrote in a book that God's actions in the Old Testament had caused, now here's his quotation, had caused the ground to be forever soaked with the blood of the innocent. They're amazed at the viciousness and cruelty, impulsive, unbridled wrath of this God who we claim to be our Savior. You know what, the, what they ought to be amazed by is the grace of God. 
by which he required the execution of the only innocent one, his son, the babe born in Bethlehem, so that guilty ones, the rest of us, could live forever. That's what ought to amaze them, amazing grace. A better question to ponder than how can we explain the judgment and wrath of the God of the Bible. A better question is how can we explain the mercy and grace of the God of the Bible? See, that's the really amazing thing. You know that God is entirely holy, right? Undiminished. Do you realize he's one who has never sinned? Can you relate? No, nor I. He has never sinned. He's entirely holy. Do you realize, therefore, that means he's at war with that which is unholy? <laughs> and do you realize we all have unholinesses in us, part and parcel of our lives? Therefore, since all of us have sinned, therefore, and since God is entirely holy, therefore, <laughs> we should all perish. We should all be executed, terminated. But this is the amazing thing. We will not all be. <laughs> we will not. Why not? By God's amazing grace, through the death of the only innocent one ever to have walked the earth, the Lord Jesus, anyone who accepts him will not die, but instead will live forever. That is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like we. What's the most well-known verse of the Bible? For God so loved the world. Prove it. Okay. That he required, that he exacted, that he demanded, that he gave. This already is an amazing verb. God is not beholden to any of us who are merely the recipients of the life he authored, and yet he took the initiative not in requiring, but in giving. For God so loved the world, I know it's hard to swallow as if God can anticipate that I have given you a demonstration of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his. It's no big deal to give away what's not yours to somebody. It's not impressive for you to steal something from a store and give it as a Christmas gift to a friend. That's not yours to give. He gave his personal possessive pronoun. How many? Only. It's not that impressive if you have like 100,000 of a particular thing and you give a couple away. You got a lot in reserve. What if it's the only? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Same nature. Closest connection. Not adopted as are we. Begotten. Son. 
We understand the vocabulary of parent and child. We understand the bond. We understand the affinity. We understand that the parent would do anything, any normal parent, to protect the child. This heavenly parent so loved the world. You want evidence of it? That he gave his only begotten son. That if even the Midianites would have believed. That whoever would believe. Would not perish. God is accused of an of a, of a execution style crimes against humanity, but He's done everything to avert the inevitability of death. That whoever believes would not perish. Well, what's the alternative? But have not just life leading eventually, no matter how much is its longevity to your natural death. No but life culminating not in the end, in the beginning, might have everlasting life. This God takes a lot of hits, a lot of criticism, a lot of disrespect. This God is falsely judged left and right. The creature tells the creator how to run the world. And the creator stands ready to forgive. How do I know this? Christmas. <laughs> the babe born in Bethlehem. It's just so ironic that deity would be born in a dirty place. And that deity would be willing to occupy the most dirty place. You know what it is? Your heart and mine. I hope you have a meaningful Christmas event. I hope you say, oh God, you're not fully comprehended by one such as me. But you're fully trusted by one such as me. For you gave the ultimate to win my heart. My heart you shall have. My mind has to catch up. I'm finite. You are infinite. Oh, God, I don't want to understand you fully, because if I did, you'd be my equal, not my Lord. Instead, I bow before you and I say, how unfathomable are your mercies. Unsearchable are your ways. I hope you have a merry, merry Christmas, and I hope you tell others that they can too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, such you are. You are magnificent, a marvel beyond words. We love you, for you have so affected us by the demonstration of your love that we're constrained willingly to love you. Magnificent is your plan of redemption. You could have done it through angels, but you chose to do it through people whom you have entered into covenant with. You're greatly offended when covenant people are offended, coerced into compromise. Those people are responsible, but the ones who did the coercion 
will surely be severely judged. For every Christian who stumbles is one less opportunity for the gospel to go forth. And you so love the world, you want it to go forth. Oh, God. During this Christmas season, we don't wait for it as if we do nothing the rest of the time. But since it's here and upon us, we want to take advantage of its momentum and renew our thanksgiving and gratitude and devotion to you. We want to make a commitment, Lord Jesus, to take this marvelous message, pure and unadulterated in the way we live, and declare it. Yes, Lord, we want to go tell it on the mountain. In fact, we want to do this over the hills and, in fact, everywhere. Yes, we want to go tell the gospel message on the mountain. Here it is that Jesus Christ is born.